This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely delighted to be joined on Football CFB by a broadcaster who I have huge admiration for. Ailey Barber has great experience of hosting live events at football, golf and other sports and is currently the main presenter for Scottish football coverage on Sky Sports. Delighted that you're joining me, Ailey. First of all, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for having me. The, the first question I've got for you um, is how would you sum up your love of sport, judging from your social media and obviously your career? You're an avid lover of football and golf. Has that always been the case from a young age? Certainly the football always has been. Just sport in general. I grew up in the countryside, so we were always outside as kids. Um, my dad played golf um, and then rugby and cricket when he was at school. My mum was a swimmer when she was younger and... My mum in particular was um, just very active um, and always encouraged my brother and I to be outside. Um, we went swimming from a very young age and, and just that kind of thing, you know, growing up where we did, that everything was, you know, there was more fun to be had outside than in a house, certainly. You know, we had trees to climb, rivers to swim in and just so much wide open space that it was, yeah, always encouraged and... Um, sport I guess just kind of grew from that for me I always enjoyed being active so when sort of football became something um, yeah I always wanted to to be involved and kick a ball around and um, I had a lot of boy cousins all my cousins really that are around my age are all boys so when we all got together as a family you know it was it was a uh, touch rugby or football or rounders or whatever so yeah it's all just kind of stemmed from there I think. And one of the things that people might not know about you is the fact that you, you played for Partick Thistle. Just sum up what that experience was like, because it shows that you could play to a high standard. Well, I've played for a few different teams, um, and Partick Thistle was the last team I played for. But when I joined Partick Thistle, we were in the bottom leagues um, in, the, in the women's sort of pyramid. So I think I was there up until they got to the level below SWPL and... At the age I was at, I kind of, it came, it, and also the fact that I couldn't commit to, to training and playing regularly because of work. No, it became pretty clear that the standard was was getting beyond me. And I have to say, I, I went back to training probably, I mean, it would have been before COVID, would have been the last time that I trained with them. And I mean, the standard then was so impressive and they've obviously taken a huge leap um, higher still um, getting into albeit by a slightly fortuitous way, getting into the, the top flight of, of Scottish women's football. But they're there and, you know, the, the level and the standard and the players they've attracted is, is really impressive. I, I love seeing the, the way they've progressed as a, as a club. And um, I still know quite a few of the girls and, and Beth, who runs the sort of runs it all. So, yeah, no, it's great to see. But, yeah, I certainly am not the level that those girls are now. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of... Um, yourself and your passion as you say you, you've played various sports from a young age we've just talked about playing for Partick Thistle 
when did you decide broadcasting was the route you wanted to, to, to go down? I think because of my love of sport, I always wanted to be involved in sport in some way. And, and when I was younger, I didn't quite know how, how that would be, whether it would be a sort of physiotherapy type angle or a personal trainer type angle. I wasn't sure, but I remember being probably about 12, 13, something like that, and sitting one afternoon watching um, Grandstand on BBC One. Um, and back then you didn't really get many Scottish voices on network television. And I remember Hazel Irvin presenting it for the first time. And it was it was that sort of moment of somebody that you couldn't see yourself as any different from. You know, she was a female, she was Scottish, and she was doing this incredible job where she basically sat in a chair for like six hours and spoke about sport from all over the country and I thought now nah, do you know what that's it that's what that's the way I'm gonna I'm gonna get involved like get sport involved in my career so pretty much from that moment on that was what I wanted to be I didn't really know what it was I just wanted to be it so <laughs> um yeah certainly it was young that I sort of decided that's what I wanted to do and um I've been very very lucky to have met some people along the way who sort of helped helped it happen a lot of broadcasters, commentators talk about at times getting an opportunity that's out of left field. Um, they might be thrown in at the deep end because someone's ill or, or, or someone just can't make it. When would you say your first real big opportunity was when you look back? Um, there's been sort of a, there's been a few. And uh, like I say, like a lot of it, a lot of it is, is timing, luck, whatever it might be. And, and I'm, I was fortunate that in the, uh, I grew up in the village of Dunkeld and there was a guy there, Andy Gillis, who was, um, worked for Five Live and he was a sort of family friend. Um, and he took me to games and he gave me my first work experience role at the Open at Troon, um, where I met John Beatty, who then gave me a few more opportunities. So it's sort of, kind of started like that but then um I was given a fantastic opportunity and um, first of all by STV to be part of doing the Scott Sport highlights you know sitting editing football matches and and going along to games and logging games like very very ground level stuff but that was my first contracted work and then I always knew it was only going to be for that one season and um, because they'd lost the football rights after that so um, whilst I was there, they did a rugby programme as well, which I got to do a little bit more on. I got to interview people for the first time. And then following that, again, a, an incredible opportunity. Um, a lady called Margot McQuaid gave me an amazing opportunity at MNE TV, which was BBC Alba's football coverage, which again was, you know, just a little bit more interviewing people. And it, it just kind of spirals from there. You meet people and and they give you an opportunity and, and it's up to you to sort of take that and and then through that opportunity you meet somebody else and and yeah so I've been very lucky that one opportunity is sort of rolled into another and into another and and then I took the took the decision made the decision to to go freelance I'd been down working down in London for a while for IMG and I decided that that role was not what I wanted to do I'd become a little bit more clear in what it was I wanted to do so but I'll come back to Scotland and Dip my toe into the freelance market and yeah it's um I've been fortunate it's worked out. In terms of pitch side reporting and interviewing people after an event I always think that is uh, is really as an art form and especially when someone 
has maybe had a really tough experience on the pitch or on the course. How do you, how do you handle that, and what is it like when you know you have to ask someone a really tough question? Because I imagine that's a that's tough from a human point of view. I think it's probably the hardest role is the post match or post round interview because, um, like emotions are always very raw, and you know for for us it might just be a game or it might not matter but for them particularly when it's sports like golf you know it's it's their livelihoods at the end of the day you know it can be the difference between keeping and losing your card and so yeah it's it those ones are really difficult and I think for me it was always just I had to 100% believe in the question that I was asking and if I thought that it was completely relevant um, and and the right thing to ask. Most players expect the question to come if, you know, if there's been an incident in a game and, and they're put in front of the camera, they expect the question to come. So it's, it's kind of important to get the wording right. I've done, I've made that mistake a couple of times. You, you word it wrong, it can come out the wrong way. And, and, and yeah, it doesn't come across as the best question. But yeah, they're definitely, they're incredibly difficult the post-match, post-round, post-whatever it is, interviews. Um, unless it's, you know, a happy winning player or a manager, then it then it becomes a little bit easier. I've spoken to a few of your colleagues, including um, Ian Crocker, Rory Hamilton, and the one thing that they both said about pitch-side reporting or, or post-match or whatever it may be is the worst thing, in their opinion, is when a manager or a player tries to put it back on to you as the reporter because you, you don't really want to be giving your opinion. You want to be asking the questions. How do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, what can I say? I've not experienced it. I've not, I don't know what it's like to be playing at that level. I don't, and at the same time, it's when you're asking the question, it is, you're very aware of the fact that I've never been in their shoes. So it, it is a balancing act in a way. And yeah, when they put it back, I mean, they don't want, nobody wants to hear my thoughts. So it's difficult, but I find them, um, yeah, I find post-match interviews definitely the most challenging. Um, but like I say, it's I think if anybody puts anything back on you, if you if you haven't believed in the question that you're asking, then you've put yourself into a position. But if you believe that the question you're asking is the, the right question to ask, then hopefully the conversation can can go that way. Post-match, uh, pre-match, etc. You've got a short period of time, whereas you're in a position now where you are anchoring coverage for Sky Sports, for BBC. What's it like when you are anchoring a, a, a full production um, for football or golf? Because really, a lot of eyes are on you and you're expected, obviously, to, to make the transition smooth. Yeah, I really enjoy it. For me, it's just a chat. It's just a conversation. Um, and you've got a lot of very good pundits that I, I'm able to work with, so... A lot of it for me is guiding their conversation, and you know, I'm I'm obviously listening to all the words, all the voices. I was going to say voices in my head. That doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> all the voices in the in the production truck who are keeping everything to time and telling us what's coming up next and when to move on. And oh, you you need to stop talking now. You need to move them on to this. So I've got all that kind of going on to try and just guide the conversation, but try and make it as natural as possible. We don't, as much as we have a, 
you know, we might have a list and we'll say, right, we've got a 10, 15 minute chunk of program there. And in that 15 minute chunk, we're going to have a, a three minute recorded interview with this player. And so we'll talk a bit about him off the back. And then we would like to talk about this player, this player, and this player. So, but none of it's scripted as such, you know, it's, and, and if we start getting into a conversation about something and, and it's a good conversation, we'll just let that go and we'll maybe not talk about the third player on the list. So it is a, it is just a really a natural chat. Um, and I just kind of keep trying guide, guide the guys through, you know, allow them to have their conversation, but kind of try and keep it roughly to, to time and, and to, to where we want to go with it. But, but yeah, it's not, it's not a scripted, we don't practice questions and answers or anything like that. So for me, it's just like sitting having a, having a chat you forget the you forget really that the cameras are there that you know there's so few people on our platform now with all the covid restrictions there's basically the three of us a, a sound man and a cameraman and that's it so it doesn't feel possibly the way that you think it might feel i mean it, i much prefer that to standing up in a room of people and talking but that's way more nerve-wracking sitting in a room of 100 people even though there's i don't know 100 times that watching on the TV, if you can't see them, they're not there in my head, so. <laughs> One of the things that I was really impressed by was yourself and Ian at the start of the season in Scotland covering two matches in the same day. What was that like in terms of preparation? Because I imagine prepping for one match is, is hours and hours of prep, never mind two in the same day with travel thrown in. Yeah, and the first two games of the season, so lots of new players, lots of new faces, hadn't seen teams play. Now it was, again, that's where... You know, it's a very different role that I do to, to what Ian does. But again, it's it's where you need good pundits. And, and you know, I certainly had them on that opening day. So um, it was good fun. I've, it was um, it was good for your diet that day. I mean, I hardly ate anything all day. So, <laughs> you know, I think I managed a sandwich at about 11 o'clock at night in the car on the way home. But yeah, it was, uh, it was listen, it was good fun. I wouldn't want to do it every week, but it was it was good fun. And it was good to start the season with, you know, we obviously thought that the flag was going to be unfurled on the opening day of the season at Ibrox and, and it wasn't. They've held off for, for getting a full stadium back. So um, that was the reason for doing the two games in the one day. And But it was good to start the season. You know, you've got the champions and then you've got what was such a great game, the, the Hearts Celtic game and the stories that were around it, the, you know, the championship champions and and Ange in his first league game in charge. So, yeah, it was great to start the season that way. But like I say, I wouldn't want to be doing it every week. In terms of Scottish football in general, um, it's clear that you and the pundits have a good time and you're enjoying um, what you do on screen. That comes across very well. What's it like working in Scottish football? Because it is a it's a mad world because within a week, so much can change. Yeah, that's why I love it because it's, you know, and that's why it's nothing's really properly sort of scripted or planned because things can change so quickly. Um you know, if we do a game on a Sunday, you've had a whole bunch of games on the Saturday. So much can change. Um, and I love the un unpredictability um, of Scottish football and, you know, a lot of what goes on that just wouldn't happen anywhere else. Like, it's, it's our game and that's why we love it. It comes with challenges as well. Of course, there are there are things in Scottish football that don't go on elsewhere that are not not things that you want to highlight, but, you know, they're there and, and we have to deal with things happening that we ideally wouldn't want to happen and um, we have to deal with 
um, it's a very different reaction on social media when you do a Scottish game, Scottish club game, to when you do an English club game. And so you, you have that side of it as well. You know, you tend not to pay too much attention to it, but it's definitely more constant and more, it's more focused. Everything's more focused in, in Scottish football because you've got essentially the two big teams. So it's, you know, if you do a game down in, whether it's an FA Cup game or a Premier League game or whatever, it's the interest is spread out right across the country. Whereas in Scotland, it's, it's, it's very intense. So it is a very different environment to work in. But ultimately for me, it's, it's the game I grew up with. I, I don't support an English team. I don't support a team from any other country. I've literally got my team, which was my home team, which I think everybody knows who it is. And then I've got Scotland. And that, for me, are the two teams I support. So this is the game I grew up with. And um, yeah, it's the game I, I love. So I, I'm thoroughly enjoying being able to, to, to bring it to people, particularly during that time when nobody could get into stadiums. You mentioned your team, for, for anyone who's listening who's not aware, it is St Johnston, who last year won the Scottish Cup and the Scottish League Cup. As a as a, a massive fan of the club, what was it like watching them last season achieve something which would be remarkable for any team in Scotland, never mind the team with St Johnston's budget? It, it was incredible. Like, it was, you know, to get to Hamden is always such a big deal. Um we haven't been to Hamden and won a semi-final. I've been to so many semi-finals over the years at Hamden and, and that's been it. And even those days have been great. So to get to the to the final, get through the semi-final and get to the final was was incredible. Um I think I think the Livingston game, I, I always felt we got through the tough game in the semi-final by beating Hibbs. So the Livingston game. Um, not that I, you would ever expect to win a cup final, but I felt quite confident going into that cup final that that we would have enough. Um, and we did. I mean, it wasn't a pretty game of football, but we had just enough. Um, and then the Scottish Cup, it was always going to be such a. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't even pick which way that cup final would go. So, I mean, but you couldn't. You couldn't believe that you've won two trophies. You've not seen any of it live. I've been sitting in my living room at my parents' house, watching it unfold on TV, and then you can't even go and celebrate afterwards. So it was really strange, and it's it is such a shame that it all happened in the sort of backdrop of of where the country was at the time. But you still wouldn't ever take it away too. And for me, I'm just I'm just amazed that it's not it's not been bigger. Um, for me, it's it's bigger than Leicester winning the Premier League. It's it's one of the most unlikely things to happen in in football and across across this country. You know, England, Scotland, Wales, whatever. I mean, it's it's phenomenal that a club the size of St Johnston, with the budget they've got, the homegrown players they've got, could go and win two trophies. I mean, it might never ever happen again in in the rest of time for a club outside the Celtic and Rangers to do the cup double and yeah it's you know a little bit disappointing it's not perhaps been given the credit that it deserves but what a phenomenal achievement and cost me a fortune in t-shirts I think I've got a whole drawer full of t-shirts commemorating cup finals and you know I've got the ones before the cup final then the ones when you win the cup final so yeah I've got a stack of t-shirts to commemorate that all so I need to get them put on the wall. As a Saints fan I want you to answer this honestly 
after you won the Scottish Cup under Tommy Wright, did you believe that you would see it happen so soon again in your lifetime? No, I mean, it taken my whole lifetime, it taken the whole club's lifetime to get to, to get their hands on one trophy. So, no, I didn't think it would happen again. I mean, the format of the League Cup helps a little bit. You know, if you're only really, you know, St. Johnson are just 90 minutes from a return to Hamden. We've only played one game. So it's the League Cup format maybe makes it slightly different, particularly if you can get into one of those European places. But still, no, I didn't. I didn't think so, particularly with the strength of Celtic pretty much since since we won the Scottish Cup, Celtic have been so strong and then Rangers coming back up and, and being so strong under Gerrard. It just always seemed like it would be one of those two. So, yeah, absolutely incredible to, to even get to two finals. I mean, I wouldn't have thought we'd have even got to another cup final that soon after 2014. Never mind go and win two of them. It's crazy. In terms of yourself as a, as a presenter, obviously you're, you're completely professional no matter which club you cover. When, you, when you're presenting a show that involves your club for the first time, do you maybe... Are you maybe harsher on them than you you would be, or do you maybe try and pitch it in a different way because you want to make sure that no one can accuse you of being biased? Does that even come into your mind at all? Not really. I see it's weird actually. It seems to be every time Sky pick us and Johnson game, I've got a golf event working to be working at. I've hardly done. I think I've done one game last season, uh, and it was St Johnson Celtic. Um, but most of the time they are playing either Celtic or Rangers. So if they win, it's a story because Celtic or Rangers have lost. Um, if they don't win, it's expectations. So yeah, it's, you do, you do detach yourself a little bit from it as well. It's, it's quite strange. You sort of, I don't really ever, there's not really an attachment to whoever's playing because even if it's not St. Johnston playing, if, you know, if they're in a battle for top six or they're in a relegation battle and, and we're covering one of the teams that hasn't, you know, their result has an impact on what happens to St. Johnson. But I still don't think of it that way. It, it's just two teams playing a game of football. It's, you are very, you, I just managed to detach myself from it in, in, a, in a strange way. Um, the, the, during the actual match, you know, if I did do a St. Johnson Rangers game, was it last season, season four? I think it was the season before and Stevie May scored an equaliser in the 85th minute or something. And, you know, I gave a little fist pump when I was standing on the platform, but, you know, you get back into the, you know, your, your full-time analysis is, you know, you've, you've got an editorial sort of, you use your editorial brain as opposed to like your emotional side of your, of your brain, if you like. And, and you kind of, yeah, phone my dad when I get back in the car. Oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> But during, but during the actual broadcast, no, it's like you detach yourself. You become this weird, impartial sort of person. It becomes work, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of that work, we've talked about anchoring a broadcast. We talked about, obviously, anchoring two in the same day, which is remarkable. How does that differ to hosting a show like Final Score or Match of the Day 2, which you have experience of doing? Because those are shows that, again, many people watch, but they're a different kind of footballing programme. Yeah, they're really different. They're very scripted. Um, and they're very, you know, they're not as flexible. They're not as reactive. And um, when we do, like I was saying, when we do our build-up or even our post-match, you know, we'll have a certain number of things that 
the producer wants us to get through, but ultimately the conversation might go a different way. And it might say, you know, he might say in my ear, actually, don't go to him. We're going to go to him next because the conversation has taken us past one player and into another player. So, so yeah, it's very fluid. Um, there's not, there's not a sort of, oh no, you have to hit this time and you have to, you've only got a minute and a half to talk about that. And it's very strict and very scripted and you've got multiple cameras in the studio. So everything's delivered to a different camera. So it is very, very different. Um, I enjoy both, but I, you know, it's live telly. I, I just enjoy doing live TV. It's, they all have their different challenges and they're all enjoyable in, in their own way. But um, yeah, but very, very different. I, again, a lot depends on on having good pundits, and you know they certainly manage manage to to get loads of them. So it helps, definitely helps us. In terms of live telly, um, without obviously naming names, do you find that if a pundit's joining you or or they're having their first um, appearance on live television, do they maybe have a chat with you as the as the, as the host before it, just to naturally as you would in any job, maybe just keep them right in that first in that debut in front of so many people watching at home. Yeah, there's been quite a few who've come in for the first time and I've done a few firsts in the studio down for the BBC as well, down in, in Manchester. And um, I think most of the pundits that come on have, have you know, they, they've watched the programme before, they know the subject matter, they know what they're talking about and we will always have a discussion. The producer and then myself will always have a little chat about, you know, what we're going to talk about, what they want to say is, you know, I'll say, is there anything that you want to say in particular on this player? And I can guide guide you into that conversation and um, so yeah it's just about keeping everybody relaxed and again when somebody's on for the first time if it's Sky they'll usually be on with with Boydie who is so relaxed anyway so it's all just about trying to keep that that kind of conversational way where you don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable or um, yeah too nervous and I think like once you get the first five minutes out of the way and you get to that first ad break like usually everybody's fine so yeah that nah, it's been it's been good it's been good getting it's good getting lots of different voices and different opinions and different ways of looking at the game on as well you obviously talked about being thoroughly professional and being able to detach yourself when you're covering St Johnston covering Scotland at the European Championships in the summer was it was an incredible experience for obviously yourself, but obviously for the nation for being able to watch it. It was shown in schools up and down the country. And lots of people I'm sure were watching on a device at their workplace or if they were working from home. And um, what was the build up to hosting that first match at a major tournament for the male national team in, in such a long time? It was surreal. It was, yeah, it was unbelievable. I didn't know until like quite late on, I knew I was obviously covering the Euros and I was going to be in camp with Scotland, but I didn't know I was presenting the first game until maybe a few months, a couple of months before. So like it came as a very pleasant surprise. Um, but yeah, it was because we were in, I think I didn't really get that much time to think about it. And then the day before the game went and did a little um piece to camera at Hamden and I and I said right, I'm gonna walk up and I'm gonna see the studio and um yeah it was it, I just stood in that studio and I was like oh this is this is gonna be gonna be it tomorrow and it's yeah it felt amazing but um the there were the guys that were working in the studio were people I'd worked with before so Tim the floor manager I've worked with 
countless times um, down south. So it's nice to have familiar faces. And I obviously knew Shelley and I knew Darren. And I hadn't met Kenny McLean before, but he was brilliant, just slotted straight in. And so I like I just felt comfortable with the team around me, which which really helped. But it was honestly the worst part of it all though was that we were PCR testing every 48 hours to be in the camp with Scotland. And at every single test, I just thought, oh no, this can't positive this can't come back positive because I don't want to miss that game I was like after that game I don't care if I miss Scotland down at Wembley like just let me get into that seat on match day and present that game so that was the most stressful thing about it all was those blooming tests every couple of days one of the things that I find interesting about those sorts of occasions where it's such a historical moment is, and again, you've, you talked earlier about not paying too much attention to social media, which I think is very wise, but I remember when England were playing later on in the tournament, people were really interested to see how Gary Lineker was going to open the show for the BBC. Did you find that uh, with the opening Scotland game that there's maybe an attention of, I wonder how they're going to open? Because there was that sort of factor of excitement of how are they going to open the show? What are they going to say first? Yeah, we kind of opened it. We let Biffy Clyro open it. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to follow that, I guess. But uh, no, um, yeah, I think it's just... It, I don't know it's you just want to sort of you don't want it to be weird you just want it to be like I, I'm just very kind of conscious of, of I just want to be myself and and just sort of let the atmosphere and let the occasion and speak for itself and let those that understand and know the situation in the three guests I have talk about it because Shelley had been there Darren had never been there and came so close and Kenny should have been there and was stuck up with me. So their experiences were all very different, but way more important than anything that I thought or, you know, felt about it, you know. So I just wanted to make sure that they got all their time to say everything around the game, but also to just let that incredible atmosphere um, come through and, you know, and, and the occasion and, and trying to strike that balance right between it's been a long time, but we're back, but not get too ahead of ourselves of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're making the last 16 because there was an element of that, which I think is what led to the disappointment when we didn't. But um, it was just the result didn't it mattered to me, obviously, because I'm a Scotland fan. But just that whole day, you know, it, it was just so magical to be there and to see it happening and you know it's one of the ones where I feel incredibly fortunate because there weren't many people who were able to be in that stadium and, and see it and when the players walked out of the tunnel it was yeah it was just a really special moment. One of the things that I have to say I do enjoy when you're covering the Scotland games on Sky is the you work with James McFadden and Chris Boyd quite a lot but I always feel, I don't know if you might disagree, but I always feel that James McFadden, you can just immediately see his passion and warmth for the national team as soon as the camera pans onto him whenever Scotland play. What are the guys like to work with on a national team occasion? Because it's one of those unique factors where yourself and the, the, the pundits are all wanting the same team to win, which I suppose is, is unique. Yeah, and that's great because you don't need to have, you don't need to have your sort of work hat on when you do a Scotland game. You can be a little bit, a little bit like more biased if you like towards team but like Faddy's just he's like a, a little boy still in terms of how much the 
playing for like the Scotland team means to me. Honestly, I've, I don't think I've ever met anybody who is so passionate about the national team. And it's brilliant. I love it because it's very easy to um, sort of forget the bigger picture sometimes, I think. And, it, you know, the national team setup is so different and it's, you don't spend a lot of time together. You can have, I mean, look at what happened with that Denmark game recently. You know, you, you lose four or five of your best players and, and, and you're, you don't have, you can't go out and loan players in or, you know, you don't have like that kind of network that a club team has. And they've been together for, what, three or four days and they were expecting to play a very different team to the one that they were able to travel out there with. So things like that become, I think, like magnitude when it when it's the national team. And, and Faddy's very good at, at looking at that bigger picture and saying, listen, this is not this is not a disaster. This is, you know, and this is not something that we need to be negative about because I think every team, I think we're going to see it now all the way through these qualifiers and, and possibly into the World Cup, all these problems with COVID and, and teams missing players. And, and when we played Austria, they were missing four or five of their best players. So, you know, it, it sort of comes around and, and we, yeah, we lost against Denmark. Not badly, it turned out, considering what they've done to other teams. But we then get the win against Austria. And, and I'm sure the Austrian fans were, and, and Austrian coaches were, we're all saying, well, we didn't have Sabitzer and, and we didn't, you know, have Liner and we didn't have, you know, and players that all started or played a part in that last 16 match against Italy at the Euros. So we were fortunate in that regard when we play Austria, they don't have a certain number of players, but we were unfortunate that it happened to us against Denmark. So he's very good at keeping that perspective. Um, because I think with the, like, the positivity that we had in the summer, and I don't just mean in terms of, of the team, but you know, walking out and seeing people wandering around Glasgow or wherever you might be in Scotland shirts and, and kids with Scotland shirts on and, and playing football in the park again and with their shirts on and that kind of national pride of, of your football team. It was, it was just great having that back for that sort of three, four weeks. It absolutely was. And, and as you say, schools getting involved and um, lots of people with Scotland flags, etc. From, from, from their houses. It was just, it was really unique and there was a real feel good factor, which is something that is always nice to see when it comes to sport or anything in society. Um, one of the other things that you, you mentioned there was, was obviously the COVID situation, which was, which was such a difficult time for so many people working in broadcasting at that time. What was it like being in these vast arenas like for instance Old Trafford, Celtic Park, Ibrooks, Wembley where you're used to having 50, 60, 70, sometimes 90,000 people and really it was only a matter of hundreds was that was that particularly strange and did you adapt as quickly as you thought you would? It was really strange and it was the big events that you felt it the most um, so when you went to you know the old firm games um, I did the FA Cup semi-finals obviously the Scotland games at Hamden the games where when you, from the minute you turn up at the stadium three hours before kickoff, the place is buzzing already. To not have that, it was really strange. Um, some of the other games didn't feel, didn't feel, not that you didn't miss it, but it didn't feel so different, you know, because it was just, for some reason, it was those big events that you, you really, really missed it. Um, but it was, initially, it was interesting. I remember doing a, a Man City game very early on and I did a Liverpool game as well. I actually might have been Liverpool. No, it was Liverpool-Chelsea I did, and I did a Man City game as well. But to have coaches like Klopp and, and Guardiola and be able to hear what they're saying, 
I quite enjoyed it initially. I thought this is really interesting to hear the instructions that they're giving. But yeah, very quickly got bored of that and wanted the fans back because it, it was, um, it's just the intensity of the games. It's been incredible seeing the intensity of the games since fans have gone back because that I think was the thing that you missed the most. Um, and it was, I'd love somebody to do a study on it and and take a whole cross section of teams and and compare their running stats and and things like that sort of without fans and with fans because I'm convinced players naturally without that buzz from the crowd did less running you know probably went in for less duels or battles because you didn't have that crowd kind of lifting helping lift the intensity and the adrenaline and everything so I think that would be really interesting to find out what the actual numbers are on that but that's what's come back with the fans is that intensity and and just that buzz and yeah it's so much as much as it makes it more difficult from a broadcast point of view because you're obviously you're trying to listen and you're fighting a crowd it's, it's night and day I wouldn't want to go back to empty stadiums at all anytime and hopefully we don't go back to them anytime soon one of the real positives in recent years um, I suppose you could say it's been gradually improving over the last decade is the rise of of the of the women's game um, in terms of football, you think of the WSL. It's obviously been covered by the BBC and Sky. You think of obviously from our own nation, Scotland, getting to major tournaments under Anna and then Shelley. Um, what, what what do you make of the rise in coverage of the WSL and the SWPL as well in Scotland? Because as a young girl who loved her sports, it, it must have been frustrating at times not being able to see women's football on TV grown up, whereas now it's so accessible, which can only be a benefit going forward. Yeah, I mean, my ambition for becoming a sports broadcaster was because I saw somebody like me doing it on the telly. So for young girls now to have the visibility of, of women's sport right across the board, whether it's football, rugby, netball, hockey, you name it, to see women athletes on a regular basis is it's just incredible and for women's football in particular I mean football is the biggest sport in this country and um, the rise of the women's game is has been phenomenal and when you go down particularly down to the WSL clubs and the teams sort of really putting the money in the facilities are unbelievable absolutely unbelievable Um, you know the likes of Arsenal Man City at Chelsea, they've had it for a while, but you look at Brighton and Leicester and the facilities that these girls are training at, it's better than most of the men in the Scottish Premiership are getting to, to use on a daily basis. It's it's phenomenal and, and it's only going to benefit the the players coming through, the league, and then ultimately for England, the national team is what, you know, I mean, they have ambitions to win World Cups. So it's it's been um, it's been amazing to see it progress but I think ultimately as well at the end of the day it's just football if you put football on the telly people watch it and it doesn't matter what it is we saw it I mean I sat when I think the first football to come back after Covid was the K-League in South Korea and I sat and watched the K-League you know I'm never going to sit and watch the K-League at the best of times but it was on so we watch football and I think some of the viewing figures and the numbers are even in the early stages of this season north and south of the border are, are showing that you know, you just need to provide a platform and, and people will watch. And, you know, the the uh, US Open tennis final had more viewers in America than the men's. And, and that's not even 
encountering the fact that it was a Brit, like that's the American audience. There wasn't even an American in, in, in the final. So the story of, of, of the two players in the final has transcended and, and people become interested in it. And, and it was a fantastic final and people enjoyed it. And it didn't matter if it was men or women playing tennis. It was tennis. It was an enjoyable game of tennis. And I think that as well with football is what we're seeing. That Arsenal-Chelsea game on the, on the Sunday, first weekend of the WSL season was an incredible game of football. Um, and I, I've heard a few guys say, oh, I watched that, that game. It was brilliant. Um, and then again, the Solheim Cup, more people watch the Solheim Cup than watch the Tour Championship in, in the PGA Tour, which I mean, that's the biggest event on the PGA Tour. And more people watch the Solheim Cup. So for me, women's it doesn't matter if it's women's sport or men's sport. If you give a platform to sport, people will watch. And and the difference for young girls seeing people playing golf, football, rugby, all these sports on TV and having somebody to look up to and to, to sort of um, like idolise in a way, but, but have ambitions to, to follow in their footsteps is it's amazing. And I wish I had it when I was younger. I'm conscious of time. I've got two more questions to ask you, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Sorry, I probably talk too much. <laughs> don't, don't be daft. Um, I want to ask you about working at Augusta National. Um, I know you're a massive golf fan. Um, it's one of those places in sport that just has a special look, a special feel. Um, I think of Wimbledon at tennis. You think of, obviously, massive events in, in football, whether it be cup finals at Wembley or whatever. What's it like being in and around that course? Because it really is a tournament where the whole it feels as if the whole world is watching, particularly on that Sunday. Even people that aren't the biggest golf fans are tuned in. Yeah, it's like Disneyland for golf. It's, it's weird. It's greener or as green if not greener and the flowers are brighter as or as bright you know it just it you know when you see things on tv and you expect to go and, and you almost expect it to like maybe not be quite what you see it's every bit what you see it on, on tv it's incredible it, it's perfect if you know if there's one bit that's not looking perfect they'll make it look perfect um it's it's just uh yeah it's like a I don't know, it's like going to see Niagara Falls or or Ayers Rock or something. It's like one of those weird places that sort of become on that kind of level in a weird way, if you're into the sport, obviously. But it is, you know, it, it's got a, it's even got like its own smell. Like you turn up at Augusta and you're like, oh yeah, there's that smell. Like the smell of Augusta. It's weird, but it's um, it's an incredible golf course and it's so much hillier. Than it looks on TV um, is a real walk around those 18 holes. Like, fair play to Sandy Lyle, still getting around there and still coming close to making the cut. And you know, he's, it's a it's a fair old walk uh, around those 18 holes of golf. But it's a yeah, it's a really special place. And fingers crossed, we'll be back there in, in April. Um, I've missed it these last couple of Masters tournaments. Absolutely, fingers crossed. And the last question I've got for you, very broad question, but we talked earlier about uh, young girls being able to see the WSL and, and an array of sports where you've got top female athletes really showcasing their talent on, on a stage where, as you say, so many millions of people want to tune in. What advice would you give to aspiring broadcasters and, and obviously aspiring young female broadcasters included within that answer? Because you were inspired by 
Um, he's 11, and I can guarantee there'll be young girls out there and even young young boys that are inspired by what you're doing with Sky and, and BBC and others. Um, mostly, I would say, if you're passionate, let your passion shine through. Um, don't be put off by uh, things not happening at the beginning. Um, there are a lot of rejections that come before that first opportunity. Um, work hard, know your stuff, ask questions, email people, speak to people. And when you do get an opportunity, don't be silent. Go in there, ask the questions. Um, just, just try and let your passion and your personality and your knowledge shine through because you need to stand out. There are so many people it's way harder now than when I was trying to get into the industry. There are so many people trying to get into the industry now. So you need to, you need to stand out. You need people to remember you and say, oh, that person that was in, yeah, they were really passionate about X, Y, or Z, you know, and, and stay in touch with people. If you go in for a day, follow it up two or three times, um, if not more, see if you can get back in for another day. It's basically you just have to be relentless because if you're not somebody else's. Um, so that would be kind of my main, main advice really. And, and when you get an opportunity, yeah, just don't, don't let it, don't ever regret and say, oh, I, I didn't take enough of that opportunity that I was given. Um, even if you think you're being annoying or <laughs> asking too many questions, there are so many people that go in and, and they walk in and walk out of a busy, whether it's the BBC or whether it's Sky, they walk in and they walk out and nobody remembers them. So try and be memorable. Um, and particularly if you're passionate, let that shine through. Brilliant. Ailey, thank you so much for your time and all the best for the, for the rest of the season and beyond. No problem. Thank you very much. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song